Welcome to Greenfluence, the podcast that brings you the latest in sustainability, responsible investing and climate change. I'm Sarah, your podcast editor, and it's fantastic to be with you here to bring you episode seven of season two. This episode is being hosted by Vis and Adriana. Adriana is our events and publications developer at Greenfluence. She's fantastic and an excellent co-host. I know you'll really enjoy listening to her. Our guest for this episode is Anne-Marie Elias, the CEO at Beckham Capital. Anne-Marie is an incredibly passionate, driven and compassionate person who is all about getting capital and capability to where it matters most. She cares deeply about people and helping those who are in need. And you'll definitely be able to hear this when she speaks. Anne-Marie disrupts the system to create and enable innovation to help make the world a better place. This is an amazing episode and it's part one of two parts. Feel free to listen to part two as well. With all that said, here is episode seven of season two with Anne-Marie Elias, part one. If you could share a little bit about your initial experiences in social impact, how did you get into the field? So my story is really strange, I guess, in a way. I'm a migrant to Australia through my parents. So I was born in Alexandria in Egypt in 1966 and then in 1972 at the age of seven my mother migrated to Australia. And a few years down the track she met my stepfather who worked in community And my mum had the lived experience of an educated migrant. She was a teacher at the British Boys School in Alexandria and then came to Australia and became a cleaner. So, you know, the fate of many, many migrants in those days and still today, you know, we might joke about how, you know, our Uber drivers and taxi drivers are the most qualified in the world. So I guess I have a lived experience of impact and social impact and hardship and the, you know, the the cleaning bedpans and cleaning there. And there was a social worker who got friendly with my mum and noticed that my mum spoke perfect English. So she said, oh, Teresa, tell me about you. And my mum said, oh, yes, I was a teacher. I taught all the expats children in Egypt how to speak English and all of that but my qualifications weren't recognised here. And that social worker basically got my mother enrolled in a welfare course. And that welfare course led her to many things, but meeting my stepfather who worked for Coazit, which was Italian welfare. So I grew up with this view that that's what you do as a migrant. You never, ever take your situation for granted you have that lived experience, so the best thing you can do is be of service to others. So I have to say that the answer to the question of where I learned about social impact has to be from my mum and my stepdad and their service to others. Yes, that's really inspirational and the fact that your mum went from having this really good qualification, was able to help teach and engage with the youth and then came to a new country looking for better opportunities and was sort of, I guess, put back so many steps. It was back to square one as if she had nothing backing her. So that's definitely, I guess, a testament to where you got your motivation, your grit and resilience as well. So 
never take anything for granted. You know, that's that's what I learned. And one of the first stories that I will share with you is my mum and stepfather, we lived in a small, tiny apartment in Hillsdale, which is near East Gardens. It was two bedrooms. So I slept with my mum and my stepdad slept in a tiny room with my two brothers in single beds. You know, like the three single beds were across the room. And my mum had this idea that when she started working for the Department of Immigration, she said to them, you know, migrants work really long hours when they come to Australia, so they can't get to the department nine to five during the day into the city. So we should be providing sessional services for migrants at Hillsdale Shopping Centre. Mind blowing, right? Because what do migrants do? Thursday nights and Saturday mornings, they go food shopping. So captive audiences. And the my mum's boss at the department said, Oh, Teresa, that's not how we do things here. And they can take time off work and they can come nine to five to meet with the department. So she spoke to my stepdad and he had a crazy idea. He said, Why don't you go and pitch to Rotary? And I'm sure he didn't call it a pitch. It's like what I know now is my mother did what startups do. She went to an organisation and she told them, please help me help the migrants. I need to run a sessional service out of the shopping centre and the government won't help, so I need your help to help me do this. And Rotary, I think it was about 1974, gave her a caravan to put in Hillsdale Shopping Centre. And that caravan was there for a decade where my mum and my stepfather were there every Thursday night and Saturday morning helping the migrants fill in forms, work out what school to put their kids in, understand, you know, the letters that they were getting from various departments or so forth. And after a few months, my mum noticed that a lot of those migrants had school-aged kids and she got worried about them. So she went to the University of New South Wales and put up a sign saying, please help me help the children of migrants study their homework. And we got a whole lot of young people your age, uni students that came and supported the kids while my parents were seeing their their parents. So that's how I know about social impact and how I know about innovation actually as well from my parents. That's amazing. It seems like your parents were very much pioneers, especially for migrants in that space. And it must have been so good as a young person getting that sense of work ethic and and I guess understanding of what it takes to build a community of migrants. So, yeah, that's like a very amazing experience at such a young age. I think I was very, very lucky. Yes, I just wanted to build on your early experiences, but more so in the uni age bracket. So what sort of experiences or choices that you made back then and how? what were some of the decisions you made and how do you think they've helped you become who you are today? I have quite a funny story about my uni experience because I really wanted to do communications and I didn't get the marks to get into communications at UTS so I ended up at Macquarie University and in order to do communications there you had to do a subject of statistics. I kept failing statistics and after a year of failing statistics I got scared because I thought oh if you fail enough subjects then you you get the uni's going to say take a year off because you don't know what you're doing. So I think I'm a hacker from way back because I was sitting there and I was thinking, okay, I'm really bad at exam subjects. So I literally brought out the university book 
because, you know, it wasn't online then, and leafed through this book and looked at every subject that was non-examinable. So I chose politics and sociology because they were essay subjects. And it's interesting because as a kid I was put into English as a second language and I had fought right through high school to not be in English as a second language. Um, And then funnily enough, my strength was English, (laughs) not as a second language, but I was really great at essay subjects and really bad at science, maths, STEM subjects. So I cut my teeth, I guess, in politics and sociology. And what I learned there is critical thinking, research, and metrics. You know, and I think all of those things were super important to understand not only how how you research a subject matter, but also work out how you might evaluate it. So I learned some really good skills in in those early years at uni and then I went back years later and I did my master's in communication because I thought I've got all this policy, policy so bad that people hate it, it's really hard to explain to people and it sits on shelves, you know. Oh, we have a policy on that. So I did my master's in communication many years later as an adult at UTS and I I did it in that because I thought, okay, now that I know how to write policy, now I need to learn how to communicate it to people so that people embrace it and understand it a bit better. So that's kind of my uni experience. Definitely. That experience reminds me a lot of how um, a lot of the tech experts these days are finding it really hard to articulate to their clients exactly what it is they're after. So you get those really funny memes that I won't explain, but maybe (laughs) we can drop some later. (laughs) Yes, thank you for that. So now moving a little bit more into the early social impact scene. So as we know, social impact, social entrepreneurship, it has come a long way from where it was initially, like in the early 2000s, maybe even the early 2010s. So what was that scene like when you first got involved? So I'm going to go back to my parents' you know, like those 70s and 80s period, you know, where I think I think social impact was more community-led and I think that's the different marker and, and that, that's the biggest difference that I notice. So if you look at the 80s, 90s and parts of the 2000s, it was very community-led. You saw people like rallying in the streets for certain things. So you saw like a groundswell of community, but in the streets going to parliament and shaking placards and things like that. I worked at Council on the Aging in the early 2000s and we ran a campaign for single-age pensioners to increase the rate of the single-age pension because if you think about it, couples get a double rate and they get the same, you know, uh, rent assistance and so forth. But if you're a single person, you've got to pay all of that yourself. And the single person's rate was half of the couple's rate. So everyone said, no, 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 it's not going to happen and it's really hard economy, blah, blah, blah. And what we did is Council on the Aging, it's a federated organisation, so we had a body in every state and territory and we ran rolling um events 
in streets where older people came out. I think in Melbourne they actually took off their bras too much. But it really got the community activated to say, you know, this policy isn't fair and we need to redress it. And that was the power of community at that time, that when we went out there, we actually changed the law and changed federal parliament's approach to the way it was going to determine the single-age pension. We did the same thing with the cataract rebate. The cataract surgery is something pretty much only older people get and the government treasury wanted to cut the cataract rebate and I was working as a policy officer in Council on the Ageing and I looked at the situation and I thought, hang on a sec, where are they going to go? Like if people can't get cataract surgery because it's not, uh, you know, supported, then they're going to have to go on a public wait list. And when I looked at the public wait list, there's a 10-year wait list for cataract surgery. So every hour that you're without that surgery, your quality of life diminishes. You're not able to do the things that you could do. So, you know, it would have been terrible if that cataract rebate was cancelled. So I pushed and pushed so that Council on the Ageing advocated for that. We did another campaign where we actually got the public to tell us stories of cataract surgery and what it meant for them to have that surgery and we reversed that decision. So that to me are the days that I long for, right, because you could see the action of people coming together to push for something and then you saw the result. I think it's so much harder these days and I don't really know who's leading the charge anymore because communities aren't out there as much. So I have a really, really sort of, you know, nostalgic view of the early days of impact, social impact, because I think, again, it was very much driven by people and communities and this advocacy, you know, people were advocated for, whereas now I just don't see it in the same way. Today I think in a way there's more of an effort across sectors, which is good, so you see things in corporate, financial sectors, philanthropy, government, not-for-profit, but I think less impact. So greater effort, less impact, before maybe less effort but greater impact. And, look, it's a real, you know, it's a conundrum because my litmus test is poverty in Australia. And I actually put this question to David Gonski. I said impact investing has been around for a decade. In 2014, there were 2.3 million Australians living below the poverty line. In 2021, after COVID, it was 3.8 million Australians living below the poverty line. So go figure, explain to me how effective impact investing is when the one metric, poverty, people living below the poverty line in Australia is only increasing. And it's not just that metric. You look at um, Indigenous disadvantage, child protection, you know, kids in out-of-home care, recidivism, every major social issue is getting worse. So I'm a bit, um, I guess, the jury is still out for me how effective impact investing is, but I do believe in investing in impact. And that's very different. To me, it still has to be community-led. You know, it needs to come from the ground up and it's communities that need to reach out and say we need help with 
this, this is what we want, as opposed to corporates or government or VCs or anyone else saying, oh, here we are, uh, you know, the Knights coming in and we're going to save these communities because it's been over a decade and we haven't saved anyone. We haven't. We haven't saved anyone. And out of that 3.8 million Australians, 1.1 million are children and young people. So I don't know how you can have some optimism around whether impact is better these days when those metrics are still there. I think today we've got more data and more sophistication in the way we might talk about impact investing or social impact, but there's also more impact washing. So, you know, we have to counterbalance that. You know, so so that for me is the things that I think about and, and I get disappointed because I think, well, we haven't really made a dent on any of the major areas that would define Australia being successful in terms of social impact. Yeah, I 100% agree, especially the concern of impact washing or greenwashing because I do know quite a lot of my friends, they are concerned in this space, but when they look at companies, how do you know one's actually making an impact versus it being just another list that they tick off on their corporate social responsibility checklist. So definitely something that we'll have to keep working on. Just before um, we get into the whole, I guess, political side of things, Anne-Marie, I was very curious about your point because I found that very eye-opening and how um, how impact through community has changed, say, in the past 20 years um, and how it sort of shifted to, I guess, more the corporate than private sector. But again, we're not seeing that huge impact that we want. Um, why do you think that's the case and why has there been less, I guess, community-led initiative, so to speak? So I did think about this a few years ago because most of my life I've worked as a ministerial advisor in politics and I realised when I was 21 I worked for a Labor Minister for Immigration, uh, Clyde Holding, and that was in 1988. And I remember back then we, we had contact with community a lot more and then something shifted. It's like government or politicians or whoever decided, oh, Let's not go to 500 people. Let's go to the community leaders. Boom, that's a whole lot less people. Mm. So now instead of consulting with actual communities, we consult with so-called community leaders, which is less people, which is not as effective, I don't think, because it's still not the communities. And, you know, with all due respect to leaders, leaders have vested interests for their organisations or things like that, you know. So I think we've lost touch a little bit with the source and my view is is that if you want to change things, you've got to work with people that are deeply affected by that experience. And I guess Indigenous communities are a great example of that. Hundreds of billions of dollars have gone into Indigenous disadvantage and it hasn't shifted one iota. Hmm. It's getting worse, if anything. And part of that is because Indigenous communities are not leading that charge. And, you know, they want to. And once they've got control of being able to lead their own self-determination, that's when we're going to see the change. Community at the centre is really important. I think having a much more agile approach to being able to fund things, which government's not good at, corporates aren't good at, philanthropy is really bad at, um, Paul Ramsey Foundation, brilliant foundation, sitting on $3 billion and now more, uh, can't get 
the money out the door fast enough because we live in bureaucracy. So whether it's government bureaucracy or corporate bureaucracy or philanthropic bureaucracy, money's still tied up and it's not getting to the need as fast as it needs to. And we need, I guess, greater capability in communities to have the people that can go and work with the different corporates and philanthropists to make things happen like my parents did in the 1970s. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's a great point because we've got all these people, so to speak, in the top end of town and they might have the resources, but it's nothing like going to the actual community and seeing what it's like. Um, and I did some work, some social impact work for my organization and it was in a it was in a community and I think like just looking at the at the facilities they had, it was clear that they were under resourced. Um and and yeah, I think that's something that's super interesting. And I think this brings me, I guess, to my next point about your role as being a disruptor. And I know it's a term that you like to use a lot. Um I actually watched your TED talk in twenty fourteen, I believe, about how you said you were you were actually one of the disruptors in your classroom when you were seven, when you first came to Australia. And um, yeah, I've, I found that like super interesting. And I have noticed in a few of the organizations you have worked for, you've had this role of chief, of, chief of, of I guess, a disruptor um, in the fish burners in Collective New South Wales. So firstly, what does this role entail? I haven't heard too much about it. And why is it so important in the social impact sector? So my my title emerged in 2014 when I did that TEDx talk and it's because the, the talk was titled Disrupting the Status Quo for Social Change and one of my staff, a woman called Karen Firth, said, oh, we've got to come up with a cool title for you to go on Twitter and everything so people can find you easily. So we came up with disruptor and then chief disruptor because when I came to Australia I couldn't speak a word of English not a word and I sat at the back of the classroom and made friends with a couple of the Italian girls and they used to translate for me and I used to get in trouble all the time because they were talking to me I was asking them questions and so I used to have to write lines I must not disrupt the class but kids I was so clever and no one even noticed it. I actually stuck four pens together and wrote my lines four at a time. That's so smart. <laughs> Wasn't Genius. it? And I'm still yeah. waiting for any of those stupid teachers to ring me and go, oh, my God, Emery, you were a genius. <laughs> but they didn't notice. And I kept getting in trouble because I was having translations in class. So that, that's where the title came up. But in all seriousness, the reason why it's stuck, I guess, is it's about disrupting the status quo. The status quo is, is the way things have always been, you know, and I can't see social change without disruption. Now, people will argue against that and they'll say, no, 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 you can't disrupt things in government or not-for-profits. It's terrible. You have to transform and whatever. My, my thing remains you have to disrupt what's going on, the status quo, in order to achieve that change because if you can't disrupt what, what always has been, then we're not going to get ahead, you know. And, in fact, I'm writing a blog at the moment called Check Your Privilege because I often see people like us of different backgrounds getting into that world of Anglo people and then going, oh, look at me, I'm doing all of this. And then you look at their board or their 
team and it's all they're the only non-English speaking person on that team and yet somehow they don't see that they're the only non-English speaking person on that team. I mean, I noticed it when I came to Beckon. We have diversity in, in neurodiversity and sexual diversity, um, but it was very male-dominated and it was very much finance sector. And then I came and then, you know, the, I've, I've got Shannon who's joined us who's doing communications and ops and marketing, so it's not finance. Um, but, you know, she's joined the team. We've got Gillian who's our um, chief counsel and company secretary that's joined our team, but we still have a normal board. So I'm not saying it in the sense that, oh, we are perfect. We're not perfect. But, you know, what? why we have to disrupt is that unless we say something about the status quo, it's always going to be the same. Unless we challenge it, unless we say, actually, sorry, that doesn't look right to me, right? So Women's Day I saw... Women's Agenda, a publication I love, put out all this stuff about women and, and there were very there was very little diversity. Now, they're good people. You know, they were trying to promote something, but it really got me thinking, how are people not checking that privilege? Mm-hmm. And for the one Asian person or the one ethnic person that was on there, how could they not turn around and say, hey, I'm the only ethnic person on you? You know, and the only place I've seen it is actually with... Um, the startup guy Alan Jones, who refuses to to sit on a panel with all men, and he will give up his seat on a panel for a woman at on a live conference situation to prove the point. Not not enough people do that. That's disruption. That's live disruption, yeah. and I love it. Right, and he's a white Anglo male that's doing yeah. it. Doesn't have to do it, but he's doing it because he can, he checks his privilege and he goes, oh, something's not quite right here. So I think disruption is important for change. I, I personally have not been able to understand how you can achieve change without disrupting what is. I just don't know. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. I think like you made a very good point about um, because obviously I come from a non-Anglo background and um, like there are quite a few times where I might be the only like non-Anglo in the room. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting. And I think like that's changing quite a bit um, especially in in the corporate setting, which is where I'm at, which is really exciting to see. I think firms are really starting to embrace that. And I think like with disruption, looking at it from a different angle, like in terms of what startups are doing, like you see all these fintechs and even places like Beckon where traditionally finance has been a very male-oriented area. And now we're getting people of diverse backgrounds and diverse skill sets. So super exciting to see. Um, I'm going to step back now to the sort of, I guess, more policy and politics focus. You've had a very wide-ranging wide-ranging career in that space. Just wanted to get an insight on like, what's the best way that state and federal governments can actually implement in terms of how they allocate resources and why has that been a challenge in the past? So one of the things that I realised working in both state and federal politics is that very few people look at the impact of decisions. Yeah. So that's a problem everywhere. People are really great talking about inputs and outputs but not about outcomes. And so that's a real problem for me. You know, if we just measure inputs and outputs, then 
we're not actually measuring outcomes, which is the impact. So you often hear politicians talk about, oh, we're, but we're spending $100 billion on X, and then you never hear anything else because they've spent $100 billion and we're all supposed to go, the fact that we still have children living in poverty doesn't seem to matter. But it really concerned me because at the federal level I noticed it, I guess, even more, that Treasury itself does not look at impact of its decisions. And that, that should concern everyone. So what can governments do better is they can actually analyse the data that they collect because they don't do that enough, uh, move away from spreadsheets and PDFs because that's how they, you know, at hackathons that's how they like to give us data so we can't open it <laughs> uh, even though we can hack around that. So, you know, I think it's the data, it's the transparency in, in the information that can help them make better decisions. And, like, we've heard all the, the rorts that happen. So, you know, there's all these great funding programs and if Labor's in, most of the funding goes to Labor electorates. If the Libs are in, it goes mostly to Liberal electorates. And that's really poor form. Um, there doesn't seem to be a great accountability on either side of politics to call each other to account, and I'd say it's because they both do it. Um, so, therefore, then it becomes really important for policy makers, for advocates like us that might go and meet with government is to make sure that we're calling them to account and we're asking the right questions, right? So you cut Program X, what are the impacts of that? Because there are always unintended consequences of every decision that we make. So my dream is that we develop a system that literally comes out and grabs your neck when you do a wrong move on your spreadsheet and you say, oh, no, we can cut that out, and something comes out and goes, no, you can't do that because, wait, have a look over there. Something that helps people see what the unintended consequences were. And I remember about five, six years ago, I went to the data room at UTS. They've got this spatial data room where you literally have, have 360 degrees of data displayed. And my dream was to get the heads of every department in there surrounded by their data, starting with family and community services, or now it's called communities and justice, to actually start to see the people, the people that you're affecting by cutting programs. Now, you guys wouldn't remember this, but about 10 years ago, state government cut a whole lot of refuges. 10 years go by and now they're reinstating that money. And you just go, maybe you just shouldn't have moved that money in the first place, right? But who is calling people to account on that? And I think it has to be the public. You know, at the end of the day, it's not the politicians with themselves as much. So it has to be us and it has to be us calling for the right data and asking for data-driven decisions, right? Because if you get a pool of money and you send it to where the need is, it's not by electorate. It's not going to be by Labor or Liberal electorate. It's just going to be, wow, this is where the need is. So that's where the funding has to go. So we, I think, we as in you and me and people like us that are in the tech startup world have to think about innovative ways of helping government make better decisions. 
That's a really good point because I think a lot of people, we tend to look at a choice the government makes and accept it and then complain about it. But I think playing a role as an active citizen is is super important. And this sort of brings me to my next point. So um, there's a lot of talk about impact washing and social outcomes and how do we measure it. So based on your experience, what were some of the tools that you used in state government, in federal government on how we actually have a tangible impact on these outcomes? So measurement isn't that often because they don't measure outcomes, but there were some interesting differences in metrics. So at the Commonwealth level, jobs is always a good metric. So the number of jobs created out of a program, the number of people that get employed, um, you know, that's always good. On a New South Wales level, say if we look at family and community services where I worked, it would be the number of children, you know, returned home from out of home care or the number of people in housing. But here's the thing, all of that is so limited, right? So if you look at someone in public housing, the department that gives them a house does not care whether they get a job or not. It doesn't care whether they live or die, (laughs) stand up or sit down, whether they have kids or not. And that's That's the silo effect in both state and federal governments. So every department's just looking at its narrow area. And I remember maybe I was a little naive working for family and community services and saying, hey, like we know that payments will cut out for women whose youngest child turns five, right? So when their last child turns five, that's when they get cut off single parent payments. And so my view was, why don't we get to them when they're kids too and offer to plug them into TAFE courses or have a look at maybe some work experience or, you know, help them actually think about three years' time when they're going to get cut off from payments. And literally the people in housing looked at me and went, not our problem. Because it's not. They gave them a house, right? And so I think... You know, that's how things are measured at the state level and in a way that's how they're measured at the federal level. And a person's journey and a person's life doesn't sit within one agency. And I think that's the problem. Like if we're going to take responsibility to lift people out of poverty, we've got to collaborate across state and federal services, right, because you get some payments from the federal government, you get some things from the state government So we actually need a much better system that looks at the person's life course and goes, okay, well, state and federal government should come together and provide this array of services throughout this life journey. And I think that that to me is something still lacking. Um, It's hard to measure social impact in politics as well because, like, we had all this controversy recently with Anthony Albanese not knowing the unemployment rate. Well, the unemployment rate's been absolute rubbish for at least a decade, and both Labor and Liberal have been party to it. Why? Because now, all of a sudden, you work three hours a week and you're fully employed. Yeah, you are employed. The fact that you cannot sustain a home, that you can't sustain a family, that you're going to be living below the poverty line is irrelevant, apparently, to the unemployment figures. So don't believe those unemployment figures. They are not real. They 
are used to suit each government, both Labor and Liberal have used them, to say, oh, look at us, isn't that great? We've brought them down to single digits. They're not at single digits at all because if you look at underemployed, if you look at all those taxi drivers with a medical degree, you just go, yeah, no, that's not, that's not, a, a, it's, not a, it's not an accurate reflection. So you've always got to be careful because there's some sordid uh, lack of maturity among lots of people in politics to actually be real about what the real data is and they will obfuscate it to serve them. So I don't know, I mean, I know all of this because I've worked in government and I like understanding these things, but how does Joe Public understand that? And was Joe Public that horrified that Anthony Albanese didn't know at a particular rate? I mean, you know, I, I would actually prefer if either leader knew how many people live below the poverty line, and I bet you on my life neither do. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's a really interesting point because for a society to have more well-informed citizens, we really need the government, state and federal to interact together and make sure they they create optimal outcomes. And um, yeah, I guess that's been a huge challenge. So hopefully, uh, hopefully there'll be um, a lot better things to come. What did you think of part one with Anne-Marie? She has so much experience and I feel very motivated after listening to her. There's plenty more to come with part two, so please give that a listen as well. If you'd like to connect with Anne-Marie, please find her on LinkedIn. All the links will be in the show notes. We'd love to connect with you and hear your thoughts, so please join us on Facebook or LinkedIn to be part of our Greenfluence community. Please subscribe to our podcast to keep up to date with the latest episodes and we'd appreciate it if you would rate us and leave a comment. It means a lot. I'll catch you in part two. See you then.